You're listening to Out Here, a podcast about building a life, a community, and relationships at the end of the road in Alaska. I'm Erin McKinstry. On episode four, building relationships, building a family. Raising a kid out here is, uh, I don't know if it's easy, but it seems natural. Building a partnership. You can't just retreat to somewhere else. You have to let the other person see you fail or see you in shame or whatever and be comfortable with that. And building a relationship with yourself. Because sometimes it's just you and a whole lot of quiet out here. The big thing is just being content with yourself. It's easier to get lost in a crowd than it is to hide when there's nobody around. Part one, solitude. The other morning, I woke up and was like, what is that noise? It's nothing more than a breeze, actually, pushing through the tops of the spruce trees, something I would never even notice most places. But out here, everything is so quiet in the winter, muffled by blankets of snow. Tiny sounds grow big. There's an occasional chainsaw or snow machine or airplane. Bird sounds pepper the morning and owl hoots the night. But that's it. Otherwise, it's silent. You have to learn to live with yourself when you live remotely. You know, and it's like it's not always easy. That's Mark Vale. I, I find that the more aged I get that I have a, an accumulated wisdom on how to deal with not feeling lonely. You know, uh, aloneness and loneliness are two different things. And, and trying to suss out and deal with that, you know, the psychological impact of being lonely, is it, it's devastating. But if you can turn that around... And largely being creative, you know, being productive with your time helps with that. The isolation is both mental and physical. Like one time my boyfriend almost chopped his finger off with a hatchet and I had to bandage it in the middle of the night and hope and pray he didn't need stitches kind of isolated. We're four and a half hours from the nearest hospital. Here's Greg Brennan. You always got to feel like you can leave whenever you want because if there's a medical emergency or even just for psychological, you can't feel like you're trapped. We don't ever want to feel trapped out here. Because cabin fever is very much a real thing. And the winter blues take on an entirely different meaning here. After the midnight sun chaos of the summers, my body often feels like it wants to hibernate. And that can be hard when hibernating is not what you need to be doing. I mean, come on, body. I'm not a grizzly bear. But if I've learned anything about learning to live with yourself and the quiet, it's to let yourself feel it, sit in it, and move through it. Here's Kristen Link. Sometimes you just need that space to kind of let yourself like have some downtime. I'm okay with where I'm at, so my mental health and getting a little bit depressed in the winters like feels like a good balance to the mania of the summer. 
People used to be more isolated out here. Old-timers holed up in cabins for months on their own without a chance to resupply. And there are still a few who do that. But in general, nowadays, we have poker games and we can drive in and out on the road. We have the internet, social media, telephones. But still, in most places, even if you live alone, you go to the grocery store, you go to work, you drive through traffic. But here in the winter, there's none of that. You can spend a whole winter without seeing someone if you wanted to. Here's Greg Fensterman. Sometimes socializing or activities are kind of just filling space, keeping you busy, kind of a distraction. And I think it's interesting to spend some time in an environment where there aren't all those distractions. I don't know, I think you feel a little more in touch with the realities of your existence, uh, your mortality. Um, and Malcolm Vance. More often than not, I'm here mostly in the wintertime. So I could even throw one word out there as tranquility. This has always been a calming place for me. And it has always been a time to regather up my strengths, to go back out. I don't know if how I could live in a frenetic situation year in and year out. But for me, it definitely, it calms my spirit to stay here in the wintertime. And even if I am only out here for a week, if I'm out here for a month, if I'm out here for six months, I feel that it gives me that sense of shutting down the, the machine for a little bit. And all that time on your own, doing things, making things, trying to shape your own life, It forces you to stare yourself down, to examine your faults and your strengths, and to face your fears. I mean, there's no running and hiding here. I think Carla Freibelt said it the best. One thing I've learned about living out here is I can't just talk myself out of being afraid. I have to face a fear, work through it, and then it's behind me permanently. There's no way around it. There's only through have to go through. Okay, all that time alone is great, but it actually is really nice when it's super cold outside to have someone to help you split wood and get water and basically making it so you don't have to do everything on your own. Love can find. <laughs> there would be times when I definitely wish there was another room that we could have our separate spaces in there. But most of the time it worked fine. You know, we just made it, we made it work. Yeah, it was, it was cozy. Tamara and Stevens Harper spent more than 10 years living together in an 11 by 13 cabin. I'm impressed. Basically, like living in a tiny little space like that and not having the ability to walk out when you get in a fight Mm. and leave. Mm. Because if it's 20 below zero, okay, well, I'm going to walk out 
for a little while, you know, <laughs> but then I'm going to get called and I'm going to come back inside. That's so, what I mean. There's no you know, other room to go to and yeah, slam the door. Yeah. So, <laughs> so like, yourself. I think it was, in I whatever, I want to be positive about this. And I want to say, I think it was helpful in our relationship in that it forced us to talk things out and actually come to eventually, yeah. eventually come to a compromise or, or like get it figured out as opposed to just I'm leaving and heading to the coffee shop or I'm going to go, you know, drive to the other side of town and go spend the night with my friends. But I definitely think sometimes a smaller space and if you're having issues either with something's personal relationship or things aren't going right or something's broken or the system's not working, the smaller space makes tensions flare sometimes more quickly. Sure. Th- maybe it makes th- things more volatile sometimes, more intense. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Spending a winter in a tiny cabin in the middle of the woods may seem romantic, but in reality, it's a pretty big test that a lot of people don't pass. Here's Greg Fensterman, who's seen a lot of relationships start and stop at the hands of this place. Some guy and his, his girlfriend will uh, spend the winter in McCarthy, and the Vegas odds are always against them. Everybody always assumes, ah, they're not gonna make it. <laughs> you know? Nobody ever thinks that people know what they're getting into because they don't. You know, suddenly 30 below is more than just a number. It's like a feeling in your fingers. <laughs> a lot of relationships break up right about the same time that the road clears. <laughs> you know? It's like, you know, honey, <laughs> I really don't think I could spend another day with you in this cabin. I'm out of here. Hey, some people do make it through, though. Like Allie Towers and Scott Anthony. When we decided to stay, it was like, all right, well, we just got together. It's really either going to make or break us living in, you know, a 12 by 16. Not super well insulated and kind of had a janky stove when we moved in. So there was a lot of things. I was like, I don't know if we can do this, then... I mean, hell, we can do this anywhere. If we can live in a tiny little cabin for days on end and not kill each other, then <laughs> then we nailed it. So, how to pass that test? Here goes. Step one, start from scratch. Like Greg Renian and Kristen Link. So this place was like a raw start for both of us. I had a plan for this property because I'd owned it for a while, but you know, as Chris and I spent more time together and she spent more time living like this, we you know collaborate and it becomes like our place versus like mine. Step two, figure out how to fight. Because when you live in a one-room cabin and you get in a fight, there's like not really anywhere to go. So you gotta get creative, like Scott and Allie. You know, this is what my grandma and grandpa did. Every time they'd start to get in an argument, you have to hold both hands. If you're holding both hands with somebody, it's really hard to be in a fight with them. Like, sometimes I do not want to hold your hands. No, but once you hold hands, like you both kind of get like this little stupid smirk on your face. It makes you both be like, okay, we're both being a little bit ridiculous. Or sometimes it's just me, and I'm just like, but I just want to be stubborn. Step three, get comfortable. And that's something that Carla Freyvalds knows well. Definitely hard to be ladylike in a small space. I'll say that, like, <laughs> you know, when you need to, you know, 
things that you would prefer to have a bathroom to do but don't require an outhouse to do are difficult and I'll just ask him for privacy or and then he just knows by certain body language like if he needs to walk away but yeah it's hard to keep the mystery alive you know <laughs> you're washing all your underwear in a bucket you know and yeah you definitely have to be comfortable with yourself first step four respect each other's space Okay, this is like totally normal stuff, you guys. Like, don't run a chainsaw when the other person is trying to concentrate. What? Voicing? Can you just sit down for a second? I'm almost done. Is that okay? Ian? Did you hear me? Ian? Can you just sit down for a second? No. Step five, divvy up the chores. Because there's a lot of them. From hauling water to splitting wood to doing the dishes, chores can feel like a full-time job out here. And no one wants to be the person who has to wake up at three in the morning to feed the fire when it's 30 below. It's always me. Anyway. Somebody has to be the one. Scott and I have this deal where I take the generator out and fill it up, and then he has to turn it off and bring it back inside. Because I usually, you know, I'm tired. I don't want to go out there unless I have to pee. (laughs) Step six. Take time away. Because there's a whole lot of wilderness out there. Or... You can just be like David Rowland and his wife, Hannah. We love each other, so we <laughs> like being close to each other. Part three, Raising Them Wild. My name is Lori Rowland. I live in McCarthy, Alaska. And I've lived here for, well, I like to say since the turn of the century. I've been a wife and mother and uh homemaker and the other half of Rokon Services Construction Company, and we raised our children here. A few years ago, Keith and our youngest son, Jubal, were doing a winter moose hunt. In order to get to where the moose are, you have to cross the Nazina River. So it was December, mid-December. The problem with that is the river isn't completely iced over at that time. And uh, they were coming back. They had had no luck. And... um, Jubal made an attempt at crossing the open river with his snow machine with a sled behind him. Things went haywire. The snow machine went in the drink, and he ended up in an open lead that was over his head. And, of course, he was in body armor and full uh, winter gear. He had a loaded rifle strapped to his back. He had bunny boots on helmet on his head. I mean, he must have been 300 pounds with all of his stuff on, all waterlogged like that. And the river was washing him towards the ice where the ice had healed over. He ended up throwing his hands out 
right at the edge of the ice, his sister had made him uh, beaver fur mitts, and that's what he was wearing. And so his wet beaver fur mitts adhered. They stuck to the ice there, froze to it immediately. And so he was able to kind of hold himself up there just less than a yard from the where the open lead went down under the ice, and we'd have never seen him again. Miraculously, I'm not really sure how this happened because humanly or physically speaking, it's not really possible, but at some point he was able to just heave himself out on the ice. Here he is sopping wet, miles and miles from home, many, many miles from home. So Keith asked him, well, should we make a fire? Should we try and dry you out and warm you up or should we just beeline for home? Jubal said, well, right now I'm not feeling very cold, so let's beeline for home. So they did. They came all the way home, sopping wet. Um, I don't know how far that is, probably close to 20 miles. Um, so, yeah, those are the types of things that, that happen when you live in a remote place like this. Uh, and your kids are out there exposed to whatever nature can hurl at them. And uh, you have to be okay with that as a mother. You, you got to be all right with, we've taught them how to deal with it. We've taught them how to stop and build a fire or whatever it is they need to do. We've taught them to be prepared. You know, my kids grew up doing really dangerous things where any, any mother in her right mind would just be sitting home eating her heart out and biting her fingernails off and tearing her hair out going, are they going to come home in a body bag? <laughs> And uh, I just, you know, you got to let that go. You got to realize that I can't protect them anyways, but God can. So let him do it and don't get in the way <laughs> and don't worry about it. On part three, the story of how and why Lori Rowland and her husband Keith raised their five children in McCarthy. Few parents decide to raise a family full-time at the end of the road. There's no school, no hospital, not a whole lot of other kids to play with in the winter, at least. We want our kids to be not just educated, but we want them to be competent. Five children, mostly boys, and you know how boys are. They need space to roam and run and be boys. Back in 2000, Lori and Keith decided to uproot their life in Fairbanks, my property outside McCarthy, and build a home. Keith had spent summers here as a kid. They were both born and raised in Alaska, and they saw value in the freedom and frontier lifestyle their childhoods had given them. His family especially was a very can-do family. Anything that there was to do, they could pretty much do it for themselves. They didn't lean on the city or society or, or the government or neighbors or other people to do stuff for them. They kind of had that last frontier type mentality. We really wanted our kids to grow up not just kind of in the back country where they could have mountains to play on or whatever, but in a type of setting where they would learn to be competent, 
that they would learn to do things. They would learn to build things. They would learn to fix things. They would learn how to deal with the wilderness and be able to come out on top. As far as my part of raising kids, it was mostly just school, school, school. I didn't have any help. You know, I didn't have like a homeschool co-op where I could lean on other people for places where I was a little bit weak in teaching. And so you have a tendency to do a lot of studying yourself, fill in those gaps. You know, I didn't take calculus in high school, but I took calculus three times with my kids. <laughs> I always tried to make sure school was done at noon so that our kids could go, they could go to work, they could learn to build things, do things, go trapping, go snow machining, whatever it is, you know, that they needed to do. So one day at about 11.30, Daniel came up to me and he was early teens at the time probably. He had been kind of getting into shooting a bow and arrow, archery. So he come up to me, he says, Mom, I'm done with school and I'm going to go get lunch. I'm like, oh, what do you mean? You going to make uh, quesadillas or something in the kitchen? He says, no, I got my bow and arrow. I'm going to go get lunch and uh, cook it over a fire. I'm like, okay, so it's 1130, lunch is at 12. Oh, yeah, sure, you're going to get lunch, right? I said, well, come home when you get hungry. And... Uh, <laughs> He goes out. It wasn't half an hour later he comes back in the house. He's got a rabbit. He'd shot it through the neck with his arrow. And he's like, I told you I was getting lunch. <laughs> okay, well, have fun eating that. I'm not going to cook it for you. <laughs> yep, he went outside, built himself a fire, and ate his rabbit. <laughs> That's what he had for lunch. <laughs> Yeah, when we moved, it was lock, stock, and barrel. We put our house up for sale in uh, Fairbanks, which uh, that was a little bit hard for me because we had built that house uh, together. My two hands and his two hands and our two strong backs. So to just walk away and think, ah, you know, we might not be able to ever go back there and, and see that place again. Um, that was a little bit hard for me. I got over it. It's all right not to be able to go back. It's okay. We had an amazing year that year for Northern Lights, and so it was kind of fun to be here in the mountains and be able to look out at night and just see God's handiwork in the heavens. Jubal, our youngest, was a baby in diapers, and then our oldest, Caleb, Mm, must have been around 10 that year. The house, of course, that we were staying in that winter, the historic house, not very well insulated, hadn't ever really been used in the wintertime, and so it was pretty cold down by the floor with all the fires going as hot, hot as we dared. And um, I remember that my husband decided one day to measure the temperature in the house and he came up with close to zero on the floor where our baby was crawling around in his diapers and um, close to 80 at the ceiling. 
<laughs> so not very good heat distribution. As soon as school was done in May, we packed up our few belongings from the other side of the river and um, started shuttling. And we moved into our basement here, which was pretty much all that there was at that time, with just a log shell above it. Kind of like a concrete cave. I cooked uh, meals for family of seven on a two-burner propane camp stove. <laughs> and uh, we got busy building. Our kids didn't have a lot of the uh, same social type things as they would have had in a town or whatever. We had to be intentional about family relationships. You know, you couldn't just run off to your friends when you're sick and tired of your brothers or your sister or whatever. You, you have to make it work. You have to realize these are my people. I've got to make whatever relationship I have work with them. You know, it, it has to be right. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm kind of by myself. A lot of people sort of think that, oh, those rolling kids, they've been operating equipment and running snow machines since they were in diapers. Well, that's true, but that's not true in a sense. Yes, we allowed our kids to do things very, very early and drive things and operate things and use tools and chainsaws and things like that. But it was with training and oversight. And then when we felt that they were competent, that you know, we would trust them as much as any other adult in the area. Um, then we sort of let go a little more and said, oh, uh, um, yeah, you want to go cut that, that tree? Go ahead. You know, and we kind of keep an eye from a distance. And then at some point, it's like, they're fine. Let them go. There were moments, though. <laughs> we were way back in the Mentasta Mountains uh, moose hunting. Of course, there was a wood pile there, and David was just attracted to that wood pile. He was three years old at the time. <laughs> so he was out in the wood pile with the axe, trying to split kindling, like he'd seen the big guys do. And I actually, shame on me, probably, I don't know, someone should turn me in for this, but uh, I actually hadn't really thought much of it. I thought, well, he looks like he knows what he's doing, so fine. And everything. A little while later, he comes up to me, you know, Mommy, I got hurt. And uh, I saw he had, he had uh, nicked his knuckles on his finger and skinned his pad on his other finger with the axe. And so, you know, I'm sitting there. My stomach's doing flip-flops, right? I'm going, i got to fix this up. <laughs> and um, I have no idea how we're going to keep it dry because there's grass all over the place and it's over the top of his head. So I soaked it in some, I don't know, antiseptic something or other, bandaged him up and put a big mitt over the top of it. Of course, he never cried. The whole time he just sat there with these big blue eyes, <laughs> like saucers. <laughs> well, Mom fixed his finger and tried not to faint or something. And um, I said, now, David, you're going to have to hold your hand up whenever you walk around. I don't want your hand to get wet. You need to keep it dry so that it'll heal really good. And um, I'm thinking, 
it's a three-year-old. Sure, he's going to keep his hand dry, you know, like hold it up over his head every time he walks around out in that wet grass and everything. And But he did. He kept it perfectly dry for the whole week that we were out there. And I have never seen a wound heal that well. It was beautiful. That little incident foreshadowed David's interest in running his own firewood business. When he was 12, he saw a need in the community, bought a chainsaw, chaps, and a helmet, the whole bit, and started cutting trees on his parents' land to sell to people. At 15 or 16, he used his money to buy a sawmill and expand his business. That's the type of thing that, you know, we wanted to see with our kids, that they would be entrepreneurial, that they would be, you know, that word keeps coming back, competent. We weren't going to just force them into a mold or anything, but just, you know, to give them the opportunity to be free to do stuff like that. We looked around at, I guess, what I would call maybe city values, you know, what, how kids are growing up in the towns and cities and stuff. We thought, hmm, that, that's, that's stuff, those kinds of values, those kinds of things, you know, activities and things that they do and trouble that they get in and whatnot. That doesn't really set well with us. We, we have this idea of how we want to raise our kids. You know, and that doesn't mean you're going to get perfect kids, right? Because nobody's kids are perfect, including ours, probably especially including ours. But um, it does sort of set a trajectory for them and give them an opportunity to be in a place that where you can, you can really um, just kind of grab life by the ears and go for it. Okay, before we end this, I have to share one more little story. It's just too much of a coincidence for me to keep to myself. Carol and Daniel Morrison also raised five kids along McCarthy Road, if you remember. And the whole wood chopping thing when you're tiny must come with the territory because when Carol's son Adam was four... And he wanted to split wood so bad because he wanted to help. Daniel would split the wood and then he would let Adam, and he showed him how to holding the wood, set the blade into the wood, and then tap it down, holding the hatchet. And they, he just pointed his finger at him and said, that is the only way you can do this. If you do it any other way, you can't do it. You won't be able to help. So he split wood when he was four years old, and he always did it that way. <laughs> he learned right then that that's... How you do it is how you're told to do it safely. Thanks for listening to Out Here, a podcast about life at the end of the road in McCarthy, Alaska. Find all the episodes on www.outherepodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Next up, Living with the Land. We'll learn what it's like to be a private landowner in the middle of the country's largest national park and a little bit about our dear friend, the grizzly bear. I thought bears would come around the corner like and surprise you and be like, boo. Thanks to Galen Huckins and Blue Dot Sessions for the music. 
Ian Giori for the artwork, Anne Scott Swafford, and my University of Missouri Master's Committee for the support. Also, thanks to the Duffy Fund and the University of Missouri for providing me with the funds to do this thing. All right, that's it. Gonna go for a ski? Alone. And I'm totally okay with it. Well, maybe my dog can tag along. <laughs>